This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. Good morning. I am Pastor John, and we have been walking through a series that we've entitled Jesus uh, throughout the last three weeks. We've been walking through the early parts of the Gospel of John, just admiring the beauty of Jesus as we lead in to Christmas. And uh, today we are going to be looking at a wedding in John chapter two. So without further ado, uh, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, We'll be in John two, that's page 861 in your blue hardbacks. You can uh, can flip there, you can scroll there if you have your device. Um, But we'll be in John chapter two and we'll be reading verses one through 11. And so we're we're not gonna wait any longer, we're just gonna dive right in. On the third day, A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Just a little bit on that woman thing. We hear that today and we think, man, that's aggressive. Like, I'm not calling my mom woman uh, because I know that woman still has a hard backhand with the right hand, okay? I'm not calling my mom woman. However, in this day and age, um, Jesus, actually, we know of at least one other time that I can think of where Jesus actually says woman while he's being crucified and he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother, and woman, behold your son, speaking of the disciple John. So this was not necessarily, I wouldn't say a term of endearment, but it was almost just like a regular way of saying ma'am or madame um, in, in this day and age. But I wouldn't say it was also a term of endearment because listen to the context in which he shares that. And Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. His mother, verse five, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons, six of them. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. 
And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We love your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the glories of your word that we get to revel in, that we get to admire, that we get to admonish. Father, would your spirit do a work in our hearts and in our minds right now? Jesus, we lay everything before you. We wanna get to know you deeper in this season as we are approaching Christmas. Father, would you do such a work in our hearts? We love you, we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. I've had the privilege of officiating around 30 weddings as I was trying to tally them up over the last eight years of pastoral ministry. I'll never forget my first one. I actually had a 101 plus fever that came out of nowhere. I couldn't make for my first wedding, which this kind of stunk, but I couldn't make the, the practice the night before the run through and I didn't know if I was even going to be able to be at the actual wedding, so I was actually sending my notes to a random guy just in case he had to officiate the wedding himself. I ended up making it, thanks uh, to my wife, because she drove me, it was, we were living in Illinois, she drove me to Grand Rapids. My first wedding was actually out here in Grand Rapids, and it turned out all right. I, I genuinely love to do weddings. Uh, I, I love seeing the bride and groom kind of backstage in the back room area. Uh, usually the bride is, is with all of her gals, some of her best friends and her mother, she's blessed to have her there and some others who she really loves and, and usually that's a very photogenic scene. It's like, oh man, this is just a beautiful thing. So I'll go in and check on them. Hey and usually I'm really quick with them. Okay, hey, you guys doing okay? We good for the time, everything's good? Okay, wonderful, and I'm just like, oh, it's so great. Then I go over usually to where the guys are, and it's not near as photogenic. Um, they, they usually have found somehow some super comfy chairs. Somehow, always, there's football or basketball or sports on. They're streaming on their phones or something. And uh, usually when I tell them, hey guys, we, we gotta get ready to go in about 15 minutes, we're gonna be lining up, they go, really? That soon? Okay, you know, and I'm checking in with the best man, making sure he has the rings, and uh, he's usually clueless, like, do I still have the ring? Like having to double check. Um, but the women, on the other hand, they, uh, they really know what's happening and what's going on and they're prepared for the moment. I love officiating weddings. I love teaching on the covenant that two people are about to engage in as two become one. And I love 
just getting a front row seat to the vows being shared, the rings being exchanged. It brings me back to nine plus years ago with my bride. It's just a great, great thing. But also, I love receptions. I love wedding receptions as well. Here, here's a picture of a recent one my bride and I got to enjoy together. And one of the best things about being invited to officiate weddings is nine times out of 10, I'm finding a way that Helen's a part of it and we can do it together. And she often helps me in that process as well. We usually get a pretty cheap date night actually. And so we, we get to dance around and celebrate with the families of, of people who we usually are somewhat acquainted with. This wedding in particular where this picture was taken was actually the Tibby uh, Messman wedding. And I had another picture where I was actually sitting on the groom's lap with my uh, wife in the background, like, but I thought that was too provocative for first service. So I didn't put it up there, but um, this is the wedding time, and, and I, I just love it. I love it. In our text this morning, we have a wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee. Cana of Galilee would be about nine miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And in the ancient context, weddings could last for about a week. About a week. I mean, you would literally, you would take time away from work, in your land, in everything else, and you would celebrate with family and friends for about three to maybe upwards of five or six days at a time. Weddings, much like today, were a big deal. They still are. And so at this wedding, we have the couple that got married, we have, you can assume, their closest friends and family, of which we find out in the text in John 2, included Jesus, Jesus' mother Mary, and five of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and then we can assume John, the gospel writer. And one quick note, reading commentaries, uh, many assume that by this time, Jesus's, you call him stepdad, earthly father, Joseph, was already perhaps dead at this time. Um, we don't hear anything about Joseph in any of the gospel accounts after Jesus' story of 12-year-old Jesus wandering off to the temple. And so many assume that he had passed away by this time. In the Jewish culture of this day, a wedding was like the party of all parties. I mean, it was a shindig. It was like the best party ever. And although it's not the most theologically significant point, I believe it's culturally relevant and still holds deep theological significance, maybe deeper than some would want to admit. And then if you pair this reality of what I'm about to share you with, with the fact that Jesus was pinned against this idea that he was a friend of sinners. My opening point this morning is simply going to be, Jesus was likable. Like Jesus was likable. It's maybe a bit of a caveat to some of the more deeper theological implications of this text, of which we will talk about today, but I think it's so important for us to know Jesus wasn't a killjoy 
or a let me find out what's wrong with this gathering type of person and call it out. It's not who Jesus was. He was simply a joy to be around, and he was, by all accounts, incredibly likable. In fact, the only people who we can see who had no interest in liking him were those who were a part of the religious elite and the political elite of their day because they saw him as a threat. Let me ask you a question this morning. How has coming to Christ made you more likable to the people around you? How has Jesus in you made you more likable to the people around you? What weddings are you being invited to these days? Because you're just likable. There's just something about Jesus in you that is attractive. I love what Max Licato says in relationship to why Jesus might have accepted the invite to this wedding. Because it's not as if Jesus didn't have a lot to do, right? You might be hearing this, you might be thinking, like Jesus, he's the savior of the universe, right? Just earlier in John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he's off to a wedding for several days probably, or at least for a handful of days. Like, doesn't he have something better to do? I love what Max Lucado says here. Lucado says his purpose, Lucado believes, wasn't to preach, I think he's right. There's no record of a sermon here. Perhaps, Lucado says, Jesus went to the wedding because he liked the people, he liked the food, and heaven forbid, he might even wanted to swirl the bride around on the dance floor a time or two. After all, he is planning a big wedding himself, is he not? So forgive me, Lucado says, deacon, deacon dry dust or Sister Somber Heart, I'm sorry to rain on your dirge, but Jesus was a likable fellow, and his disciples should be the same. I'm not talking debauchery, drunkenness, or adultery. I'm not endorsing, Lucado says, compromise, coarseness, or obscenity. I am simply crusading for the freedom to enjoy a good joke, enliven a dull party, and appreciate a fun evening, end quote. Jesus was likable. He was likable. Now, hear me out. This isn't a text, if you're one here today who's thinking this would be a great text to endorse drinking alcohol, this isn't a text for that. And this is also not a text that we should use as Christians to be the life of a party in a way that leads to a debauched lifestyle or a lifestyle of just doing what you wanna do with very little or no boundaries and being the life of a party in a way that actually makes you a public embarrassment and you most likely, if that is you, have, an, have a problem that you need help for. 
This isn't the text for that. Because the reality is Jesus being the life of the party, which is what I entitled this sermon today, actually means that at a party, you're inviting the presence of Jesus to it as his people. And so we aren't to be the kind that overserve ourselves and literally get out of our minds in terms of our sobriety and being sober-minded, literally. But we are to be a type of people who can still have a good time without over-serving and without having to do things that we know the Bible would not endorse. But Jesus, man, he, he was likable. And his people should be as well. So let's dive into the problem we have here. I'm gonna talk problem, solution, and then we're gonna talk kingdom and wine and how those two intertwine throughout the Bible to point to a bigger kingdom picture. Okay, the problem. The problem is simple, and Jesus' mother said it, and it's clear as day. They have no more wine. Some of you right now do not check your grocery list. If that's your problem today, this, this is not for you, okay? This was a deeper problem at a wedding. They have no more wine. We're out of Cabernet. We're out of Cabernet. Here's what's important to know. The scriptures use wine as a symbol for joy. The scriptures use wine all throughout it as a symbol for joy. Psalm 104.15, wine gladdens the heart of man. Isaiah 55.1, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. There's also a beautiful passage in Judges 9.13 where the vine says, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to go waving over the trees to the Jewish mind wine symbolized joy. And in fact, the rabbis had a contemporary saying, without wine, there is no joy. Without wine, there is no joy. So one could translate Mary's words to Jesus, they have run out of joy. They have run out of joy. Almost nothing in Jewish custom was done haphazardly. And one commentator points out that actually legal ramifications were a possibility when the appropriate custom was not followed. This is not merely an embarrassing situation. This is an absolute crisis for the host. They've run out of wine. It's like not having enough chairs at your party or not having enough cake at your birthday. I mean, this is a big deal. Again, without wine, there is no joy. Hear me out. Again, this text is not about Jesus fixing the problems in your life. You need to know that. You need to hear that clearly. In fact, the gospel writer John says in John 20, as it relates to Jesus' miracles, and we should take note of this, church, 
Verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. John writes, says, man, you, you couldn't hold all that Jesus did in his 33 years in this book. Then in verse 31, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. About a, about a year ago or so, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, our worship leaders, Frank and Amanda, had taken Helen and I out for wine tasting at uh, Cooper, Cooper's Hawk. It was the first time I'd been there, and so they take us out wine tasting for our anniversary. So it's our eighth anniversary. They take us out, and they bring this bread this lusset, just, just this lush, white, full of gluten and every other good thing that God produced, bread. And what, what you find out is like they bring you so much bread because like if you're gonna do wine tasting, the bread cleans the palate, but it cleans the palate for the new wine or they bring you this bread so you can also clean your palate for the main course. The miracles were simply the palate cleanser to the main course, Jesus. Or the main wine, the true wine, the new wine, Jesus, that he was bringing through the bringing in of his new covenant, his new promise to his people. Too often, one of the greatest, and I think there's something to this that we really need to consider, um, for the last several years, perhaps the last decade plus, the greatest movement of Christianity has have come through the charismatic movement. Charismatic, Pentecostal, Church of God, that this has been the greatest movement numerically all over the world in Christianity. The numbers are very clear. All other mainline denominations doing this, the charismatic movement seems to be doing this over the last 10 plus years, especially. But it's been that way really since the 70s, the vineyard movement. But I think it's important to know we have a big problem if we put miracles and if we put healings as the main course and not miracles and healings simply pointing to the main course, which is Jesus. And so that, that is something, as I'm studying this text, realizing this text, so many people, they wanted to be fed, they wanted to be healed, but that was not the main course, it wasn't the main point, and when we make it so, we have a problem on our hands. It is meant to point to the Savior, the true wine, the true main course. Now what's the solution? The solution to the cultural disgrace of running out of wine at your wedding parties in verse five, Jesus' mother Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, they've, they've run out of wine. Woman, what do you want me to do? 
my time or my hour has not yet come. And Mary's response is, servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you. We don't have many words from Jesus' mother Mary recorded in the Gospels. We have the Magnificat, we have Mary's song. It's actually a popular one to read during this time. But other than that, we don't have a lot of words recorded from, from the mother of Jesus. But these are important from Mary. Do whatever he tells you. Hear me out, there has never been, and I am convinced, there will never be a time in my life or any of our lives where we put these words into practice and regret them. Do whatever he tells you. Students, when it comes to the next steps in your life, do whatever he tells you. When it comes to the spouse you choose, do whatever he tells you. Parents, when it comes to how we are going to raise our children, do whatever he tells you. When it comes to how much we are to give, do whatever he tells you. And when it comes to making season-changing decisions in our lives, like when we are to retire, when we are to move out, when we are to do this, that, or the other, do whatever he tells you. Mary's words should be noted here. Do whatever he tells you. And who is Jesus? He is the Word. He is the Word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as his people, we hear his voice the clearest when we are in his Word, meditating on his words and listening to his voice. We are to do whatever he tells us. And that's what the servants do here. And that's how we should live our lives. And so Jesus tells the servants to grab the six water jars. The water jars would have been filled with water for the purpose of ceremonially, ceremonially washing their hands in between courses during the meal. The water jars, 20 to 30 gallons a piece they were, John tells us, pointed to the law. This is how they were to ceremonially wash their hands in between courses throughout the day. Now when Jews reflected on the kingdom and what the kingdom would be like, they thought about banquets, and particularly they likened the kingdom to a wedding banquet. In one of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story of a guy who's throwing a wedding, and he invites, he invites all the people to come, and back in that day, it was custom for the person who was having a wedding to ensure that the people had the right garments on for the wedding. And so, Everyone comes to the wedding, and one person tries to get into the wedding in whom he was invited, but he tries to come in with his own garments. 
And the scripture in Matthew 22 says, the host of the wedding kicks him out. And Jesus' point seems to be very clear. He uses the point to the reality that you and I cannot come into the kingdom on our own terms or on our own merit, in our own garments. We have to receive the garments that Jesus offers, the righteousness that comes from salvation by grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And when it comes to wine in Matthew 26, at the Last Supper, Jesus refers to wine as the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So weddings and wine or banquets and wine point to kingdom throughout the scriptures. And so let me share in conclusion here three brief and final points that we can see from this story that remind us of God's dynamic reign and rule on earth, which is the kingdom of God. First point, the kingdom of God is greater than anything the world can offer you. Do you believe that? That the kingdom of God is greater than anything the world can offer you. When the master of the banquet tasted the wine that Jesus had miraculously made, he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then when people have overserved themselves, then you bring in the cheap stuff, but you, to the host of the wedding, you have chosen to bring the best out first, or best out last, rather. God's reign, Jesus' way, is greater than anything this world can offer you. The kingdom of God is better than the dreams and aspirations that you have or had for your life. His kingdom should take priority. His kingdom should take full reign in our hearts. And they should, it should disrupt us in every way imaginable in a beautiful sense. God's kingdom is greater than anything that the world can offer you. It should come first. The way we raise our kids, the way we treat our spouse the way we handle our finances. Singles, when we choose to be intimate, when we choose to be intimate with the opposite sex. God's kingdom should be the direction in the focal point in all things. Everything should be through the lenses of the kingdom of God. It's better than anything that this world can offer. Next, Again, because of banquets and weddings and wine pointing to the kingdom, the kingdom of God includes all willing participants. All willing participants are included. They took Jesus' word and he provided the increase. Do you realize that he could have miraculously added water to those jars himself? He could have done that himself. Do you realize he didn't need a little boy sack lunch 
to feed 5,000. He could have done that himself. But he chooses to use the servants of the banquet to be a part of the miracle. And today he chooses to include us in the gospel mission of inviting others into a relationship with him. He didn't have to do that. As you all know, I'm a 49ers fan. And the 49ers have this young 23-year-old kid, second-year quarterback, who was literally the last pick of the 2022 NFL Draft. They call the last pick of the NFL Draft every year Mr. Irrelevant. And he is our starting quarterback, and he's having an MVP-caliber season. Do you know what the role of a quarterback is? It's football season, so ladies, I'm sorry. But it, do you know what the, the role of a quarterback is? To distribute, I would say, to distribute the football. Simply put, to distribute the football, whether it's to the wide receivers, the tight end, the running back, to be a distributor of the rock. And really, as people of the kingdom, that's our role too. To distribute the good news of the gospel to others around us and get out of the way. God longs to use last picks, the Mr. and Mrs. irrelevance of the world, to do his kingdom work. Because he needs us? Not at all but because he loves us and he created us in his image with great purpose and plans, yes, absolutely. Last point this morning, the kingdom of God is more than enough. Is more than enough, simple math. Six stone jars holding, let's say, it says in the text, 20 to 30 gallons in these stone jars. Let's say, just for practical sense, let's get in the middle, the average there, 25 gallons a piece, let's say. That's 150 gallons between the six stone jars. That's 19,200 ounces because they were filled to the brim. The average bottle of wine, according to Siri, because I asked her, is 25 ounces. Comes out to just over 76 bottles of wine that Jesus produced here. You think that's enough? I think they're good. 76 plus bottles of wine as we know, as we know wine. Long story short, I think Jesus provided enough. Now what could an eternity of good works produce? We know it can't produce righteousness. We know an eternity of good works can't produce people who are made right before God. What did the jars represent? The law. made for water, to cleanse our hands ceremonially as we go from course to course. Jesus here made a new thing 
out of those old jars. What did Jesus' death on the cross accomplish for us? Forgiveness of sins and a right standing before God. It is because of the sinless Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world according to Revelation 13, 8, that we stand right before God Almighty. What a lifetime of good works could never accomplish, Christ accomplished through his sacrifice on the cross. This is the Jesus that we serve. And my question this morning is, have you received this promise? And has this promise impacted you as it relates to the kingdom of God. Because if you've truly received this promise, it will impact you and mess up your whole life in the most beautiful way possible for the kingdom of God. It is yours to receive. Confess your sin, turn from your sin, and place your trust in the Savior who provides new wine through the blessing of his new covenant, and he offers it to his new humanity here on earth. Let us pray, and let's receive it in our hearts today. Father, we're reminded of the covenant that we have been invited into through the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, the one who was slain before the foundation of the world is the one who offers us into this great promise. Father, may your reign take over in our hearts today. May it disrupt the very faculty of our hearts today. May we not be the same. Father, if we have been holding on to religious practices over kingdom practices, Father, change us today. If we have put our way in front of your way, Yahweh, change us today. If we have yet to confess our sins and to repent from our sins, to turn from our sins and to trust you with that forgiveness, Jesus, would you accept us today? Father, we thank you for your reign your dynamic reign and rule in this world. And we want to join you in that as your new humanity that you have invited in. God, we thank you. We love you. Let the practical portions of this text disrupt us and let the deep theological portions of this text disrupt us. Father, may we be changed through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the spirit that he gives us. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.